Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Math. I'm your host, Jim Stein. Today we are talking about the book, The Golden Ticket, PNP, and the Search for the Impossible. It was written by Professor Lance Fortnow, now of Georgia Tech University, and he's going to talk about it. Lance, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Jim. Nice to uh, be here. Lance, I was fascinated by this book. It was a very, very easy to read book, and I found that I was enjoying it because it was entertaining and it got to the point where I realized that this was a problem that once solved could have a tremendous impact on our lives. And I think that made it very, very interesting for me because the vast majority of mathematics questions, when they're solved, only the mathematicians know about it. This is one that once we solve it, it's going to be truly a fascinating question. Anyway... Um, what I would like to do is I'd like you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, okay. So uh, right now I'm currently um, chair of the School of Computer Science at Georgia Tech, as you said. Um, I, I've, um, I grew up in a New York City, New Jersey area. Uh, let's say I did my undergrad at Cornell and I did my PhD at MIT. And I've spent many, many years in the Chicago area working at University of Chicago in Northwestern. In fact, I mean, we just moved down to Georgia last summer. Uh, and I have, uh, you know, a two beautiful teenage daughters. <laughs> and I love you. <laughs> Excellent. Um, anyway, I guess the first question that I'd like to ask you is tell the listeners a little bit about the PNP problem so they understand what the book is about and what it's concerned with. Okay, so the PNP problem, um, I don't want to get into the technical definitions of it, uh, but roughly what it, it, I, the idea is to try to capture what kinds of problems we could solve quickly on a computer. What are the great computational challenges um, that we are able to solve or are we not able to solve? And that's what the, the PNP question is trying to ask. So a standard um, example would be what's known as the traveling salesman problem. Uh, traveling salesman problem, where um, the question is, uh, um, if you're a, a traveling salesman, salesperson, maybe, uh, and you want to visit 50 cities, it uh, doesn't matter what order you visit them, but you want to minimize the total amount of time it takes to travel between all these cities, uh, what's, can you find the shortest possible route? Um, and so there's a problem like that, and there's several other related problems, and whether or not we can solve them um, relates to uh, uh, a mathematical question known as the PNNP problem. Where, yeah, go ahead. Uh, okay. One of the things that is interesting about this problem is that the Clay Institute at the turn of the century had, I think, seven $1 million Millennium Challenge problems in mathematics. And the PNP problem was one of them. And the others seem to be very abstract, but this one's real down-to-earth. Do you have any idea how this problem got selected as one of the $1 million challenge problems? Let me go a little bit further back than that. So when I grew up, there was this uh, uh, long-standing 350-year-old problem known as Fermat's Last Theorem, a very simple to state mathematical question that every kid kind of grew up you know, imagining that they would solve and solve this incredibly great mathematical challenge that, that was left open for centuries. And then it actually did get solved by Andrew Wiles in the 90s. And so I think the Clay Math Institute was trying to do was create a new set of problems to get people very excited by mathematics, by getting them by saying, listen, there's these huge mathematical questions and that, that we really want to get settled. Um, and they have... Uh, a large list of um, 
of implications throughout mathematics, in some cases, you know, outside mathematics as well. Uh, uh, so I think that they set upon this challenge in the 90s to come up with this list. They would call it the Millennium Problems, and um, they would actually give a million-dollar bounty on, on each of these problems uh, to, uh, to, underline, to underscore their importance. I heard there was a lot of discussion about whether or not to include the DNP problem because some people felt it was, in some sense, too practical a question. But um, really, if you do look deeply into it, it is fundamentally a, uh, a very deep mathematical question as well. So um, it, it really talks about the nature of, there's a, a, it ties in closely with, with logic and with um, and just with a number, it just there really is a, a, a deep mathematical nature to the question beyond, uh, you know, the connections to real world computation, which kind of drove the problem. And so I, and because of that, I think that it, and it's just in general importance that it, it actually became one of these millennium problems um, uh, that uh, that the Bay Math Institute wanted to underscore the importance of. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about your book and was the fact that the solution of this problem could have a dramatic effect on our lives. And that was something that really opened my eyes, especially when you started discussing something that you called the beautiful world. And I thought that was a fascinating way to bring this problem down to earth. And I wondered whether or not you could spend a few moments discussing the idea of how solving this problem would create such a fantastic difference in our lives. Okay, so I should, um, I should first remark that we don't know which way it will be resolved. You know, whether we say P equals NP and all these problems are easy, uh, or P not equal NP and then some of these problems are are just difficult to solve. And then, so my book, I try to deal with both possibilities. Um, and so the beautiful world is what I call in this, it's you know, what I've been calling to myself, my science fiction chapter of the book, where I try to imagine this world where, um, where what would happen if P equals NP? And it's really, so P equals NP means that all these computational challenges we're trying to solve would actually become easy. At least P equals NP in spirit, you know, says that. So, so I, um, and then, you know, it, it's amazing when you look at what's going on in science today or in medicine or in pretty much every aspect, how much, how much of the challenges we're facing are algorithmic, not just, you know, a, a, a trying to solve large scale problems. And so, for example, a lot of cancer research is, is, is trying to analyze you know, how does DNA affect proteins and, and how can we tailor, how can we recognize cancer and design um, uh, uh, proteins that would attack the cancer cells or leaving the rest of the cells uh, untouched. Um, but if, you, if P were equal to NP, those kinds of computations might become very simple, so it might be very easy to solve to um, cure diseases like cancer and other diseases uh, uh, just algorithmically in some sense. I mean, you know, obviously a lot of biologists have to go through it too, but, uh, but to remove the algorithmic challenges would make huge advances in medicine. Um, I also talk about, you know, it would be make it much easier to, uh, 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 it would be make life, it would make, make, make it much easier to learn things um, you could be, build instant language translators. I mean, we have some with like Google, but you can make them so completely natural. Um, we can have the universal translator that we saw on Star Trek, for example, where we could have uh, uh, you know, perfect learning of anything. We could even imagine a world where uh, you, could, you could recreate uh, uh, even sort of works of art. You could imagine learning certain skills and actually able to create new um, uh, uh, novels or, or, or music um, based on what was known before just by analyzing it um, using uh, um, algorithmic tools that would be possible. If you were but I need to emphasize that, in fact, um, I do do this chapter to try to excite people about the PNP problem. I do want to emphasize the fact that most computer scientists don't think that P is equal to NP. They're not likely to be in this beautiful world. 
um, and that these computational challenges will remain very difficult. Um, and so I spend a considerable part of my book saying, well, just because they're difficult doesn't mean they're impossible and how are people trying to deal with these challenges. And I think understanding if we're able to actually prove that he was different, um, that should give us insight to understand why these problems are hard. It should, in a sense, also give us insight to how do we attack them individually by getting around these hard issues, how we sort of deal with the hard challenges and understand what we can and can't do. I think one of the things that might be worth spending a couple of minutes on is actually defining what you consider to be an algorithm, because people in mathematics think of mathematics as talking about things such as equations and angles and stuff like that. An algorithm sort of seems beyond the scope of mathematics, and so maybe you could familiarize our listeners with it. So not at all. Not at all. So an algorithm is really nothing more than... Uh, in some sense, a computer program, the best way to think about it. And what is a computer program? But a computer program is just a series of characters. You write a computer program and you pick whatever your favorite programming language is. And what is a computer program? It's just a series of characters. So it's basically can be encoded as a number in some sense. And so you can interpret a comp- an algorithm mathematically the same way you can interpret a geometric figure like a triangle or square, or a concept like uh, complex numbers, um, or any other sort of mathematical object. You you can formally give a mathematical definition of what an algorithm is. Um, And we can give a formal definition of what it can do thanks to the work of uh, a brilliant mathematician from the 30s, uh, Alan Turing who actually created what was called the Turing machine, which actually gave uh, a a formal mathematical definition of of, what an algorithm computes. So so, so so there's no problem in completely formalizing this whole process. Um, I try to avoid that in the book pretty much, because I'm trying to aim aim the book at a more more general audience. but there is no problem. The P, the P versus NP problem, I do want to emphasize, is a very well-defined mathematical question. Um, uh, even if, uh, even in the book, I tried to talk more about the spirit of P and P than the actual mathematical definitions instead. Um, as far as, yeah, so an algorithm is just really computer code. It's really just a list of characters. That's all that it really, it really is as far as a mathematical object. And, and the, the challenge, though, is to understand even very simple, even a very simple program. It's very difficult to understand what that program actually does. That's, <laughs> it, that's, that's where the real challenge lies. And that's where it's very hard to analyze these things. You mentioned Alan Turing's work in the 1930s. Would you think that that actually, because it starts the idea of form, maybe formal computation, that's where the history of the P versus NP problem might actually begin, or maybe the prehistory? And maybe you could catch your, our listeners up with the actual history, because as I understand it, and as you presented it in your book, it ties in with the Cold War. Yeah, in, in the sense that um, there was very little communication during the, the Cold War, um, uh, so for some of you younger listeners, uh, you know, the Cold War was this period from after World War II until the late 80s, until about 1990, where um, there were basically two superpowers, Russia and America, and, um, and what uh, Winston Churchill called the Iron Curtain that sort of separated the two that ran through, uh, separated Western and Eastern Europe. And uh, the, there wasn't a lot of scientific collaboration or communication. There's some, but not a lot, between um, both sides because there was um, there was a lot of scientific competition, you know, uh, mostly expressed in the space race, for example, um, which is kind of a shame. So we really it was really a period where there were quite a there was quite a lot done in science and in math, um, where efforts are being duplicated both on one side and the other, and this is a and the PNP problem is actually an example of that. Um, in America, what happened is um, uh, uh, around the 60s, 
uh, people were starting to ask, you know, computers. So, I mean, Alan Turing had his idea of computation come up in the 30s, but we didn't have computers back then. He was actually trying to understand the power of, of mathematicians thinking. That he actually ended up coming up with a great notion of what computation is. Um, it still stands to today. But what happened in the 60s, you know, sort of uh, uh, people started asking, um, well, um, now we have real-world computers, but it seems that there are some problems which take, which are hard to solve on computers, and some problems which aren't. And so there was a lot of work in the 60s trying to classify how do I, how do I analyze the computational power of programs, and that and then there was a 1965 paper by Yuris uh, Armanis and Richard Stearns that really sort of defined this area, sort of gave us a way to, to measure the amount of computation time it takes to solve a problem. Um, uh, uh, later in the 60s, this notion of what efficient computation um, and work by Alan Calvin and Jack Edmonds, sort of different work that kind of understood what it meant to be efficiently computable, to efficiently solve some problems. And then in the early 70s is where we really saw this notion of, of NP come out. Um, a seminal paper by Steve Cook, he showed a certain problem in logic was very hard to compute unless, a whole, unless all the problems like it are hard to compute. And then in a follow-up paper by Richard Karp a year later in 72, he showed that a whole slew of very natural problems that people are trying to attack were all computationally equivalent and computationally equivalent to the PNMP problem. And that really got the ball rolling. And from there, um, from there, uh, there was a large amount of work after that, uh, trying to understand the power of, you know, what kinds of problems are hard to solve. And people tried to start attacking the PNMP problem, you know, with not much progress. Um, on the Russian side, what happened was a bit different. Um, there's a much more, the mathematical society in Russia was much more controlled and centralized, as you might imagine. Um, um, and so it was actually very, there was a professor in Russia by the name of Leblonsky who had done some work related to a concept, a, a beautiful word they have is parabore, which means uh, brute force search. And so they, so they want to understand the power of what they call parabore, which turns out to be related, at least uh, spiritually, to the PNP problem. Uh, so uh, Lubansky had done some work, and then he claimed that the, the problem was settled, which kind of prevented the Russians from kind of doing further research on it. Um, uh, luckily, there was a little... Uh, uh, sort of rascal by the name of Leonard Levin, who in the early 70s uh, wrote a paper where he he managed to actually come up independently of Steve Cook, and uh, actually Steve Cook was a candidate at the time. Uh, uh, he actually came up with the same notion of this PNNP problem in, in, in a very short paper that he wrote in the, um, in the early 70s as well. And, uh, and then so, Lena, so in reality, Lena Levin, although we didn't find out about Levin's work until the late 70s, I would say, in the, um, in the U.S. So it really was kind of went through a different circuitous route in Russia than it did in America, but we ended up at the same place. And that's, I, I think that's a good sign because that means if two different independent sort of groups kind of come up with the same idea, that really underscores the importance of the idea. That this idea, which came out of nowhere, really came to be the same idea from both the Russians and from, um, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the Americans. I see that the idea of brute force computation is necessary to solve certain problems. And one of the things that I also enjoyed about the book and I think some of our younger listeners will, too, was that you were able to put some problems in sort of a Facebook context. And I wonder if you could do that now, some problems such as clique, for instance. Yeah, so just that, this, this is an example I love to use. It's, um, so a clique is just, it's a group of people who are all friends of each other. And so in Facebook, it's clear what this means, because two people are either friends with each other or they're not. Um, so in... 
So here's a, so a clique is just a whole group of people where everyone, every pair of people in the group are friends with each other. So you can imagine, you know, it's a group of friends. Like my daughter has this group of eight friends she hangs out with, and they form a clique because they're all friends with each other on Facebook. So let me ask the question, what is the largest clique in Facebook? Ask that question. Nobody really knows. You can guess maybe it's 100, maybe it's 200, maybe it's 50. Yeah, nobody really knows. Um, but you really can't solve that problem. First of all, you don't have access to the data. Facebook guards its data because it cares about privacy of people. Um, it's also its data is very valuable. So you can't get access to the Facebook data to try to analyze it. But suppose you actually worked at Facebook. So you can imagine someone working at Facebook and you know, someone might want to question, what is the largest league? What's the largest group of people on Facebook who are all friends with each other? And so with someone at Facebook, you'd say, well, sure, they could just write a computer program to solve that problem. And now the first approach you would use is, is you know, brute force search, parable, as we said. Um, uh, but the problem with that, if you look at all groups, well, you look at all possible groups, you know, Facebook has, what, a billion people, or at least, I mean, close to a billion possible members. If you look at all groups of size 100 among a billion groups, that number is so big. You don't, you know, the amount of time, doesn't matter how fast the computers are, you're never going to solve it in, within the end of the universe. There's just no hope. So proof for search doesn't work. There's just too many possibilities, too many possible groups to look at. Um, and, the P and, I, and so the question is, we don't know of brute force search is necessary to solve this problem. Um, in fact, that's exactly what the PNMP problem uh, asks. So maybe there's some other very clever algorithm that doesn't need to do this whole brute force search, but uses some other very clever idea that somehow finds this largest clique in Facebook. And that's what the PNMP problem captures. Um, whether there is some different kind of algorithm, and I don't know what it's going to look like. Nobody knows what it might look like. Um, probably doesn't exist at all, but, but we don't know. Maybe there's some clever algorithm. That, is there some clever algorithm that will actually find um, you know, these large groups of people in Facebook that all know each other? Well, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things that was done in this area is that they showed that there was a whole class of problems, such as clique, all of which were, in some sense, equally difficult. And it struck me that when I was looking at it and you said, well, we have this beautiful world if P equals NP, meaning basically we can solve these difficult problems. Um, in mathematics, or at least in the branch of mathematics that I know, there's a difference between showing that a solution exists and being able to find it. And it struck me that you might be able to show that a whole bunch of problems are equivalently difficult and maybe they are all relatively easy to solve, but don't you have to sort of attack each problem on a problem-by-problem -problem basis? Or is there sort of one general idea which might cause a whole bunch of different problems like, say, traveling salesman and clique to fall simultaneously? So um, what we show are problems, well, not what I showed, but what, basically what, what Richard Karp showed in the 72 paper was that problems like traveling salesman and clique are, are equivalent, um, as, you, as you would say, computation equivalent. And, and what they did was they used the notion of what's called a reduction. So they showed that if I had an algorithm that could solve the clique problem, you could modify that algorithm relatively easily to solve the traveling salesman problem, or vice versa. You could solve the traveling salesman problem, you could modify that algorithm to solve the clique problem. So if someone were to come up with a clever algorithm for clique, um, for the clique problem in Facebook, you could take that algorithm and use it with some modification. You have to add a little modification, but we know how to do that modification. That, that modification is already known. If I had some, some magic algorithm that could solve clique, we, we now know how to take that algorithm, that magic algorithm for clique, and turn it into an algorithm for traveling salesman. So the, the nice thing in the beautiful world is you can take a single algorithm. Um, you know, if, if P were equal MP, there'd be a single algorithm that would solve one of these hard problems, and then we could easily modify it to solve all the remaining problems as well. I thought that was absolutely fascinating, but also there's another aspect to it, um, 
which when you mention the beautiful world, that there's sort of some ugly, there's sort of an ugly underbelly to the beautiful world. And that's that all of a sudden we have widespread unemployment because computers are doing even more stuff than we are today. And privacy is basically out the window. And so um, one of the things that sort of worried me is, do you think the gain from these faster algorithms would offset the sociological consequences, and I realize neither one of us is a sociologist, so we're just speculating here, but you're in an area which can do a better job of it than I could. So, uh, first of all, I want to I make this, I don't know, the answer is, this would be such a change, you know, if you asked me in the 90s, how is the internet going to change society, I would never have guessed where we are today. Um, so, it's, it'd be very hard to say what would happen exactly I mean, maybe you just people wouldn't have to work because everything would be, you know, would be so cheap and easy to do. Um, so who, who knows what would happen? But I mean, maybe make I mean make a very strong point. These are not issues that so that completely that you know are only gonna we only have to worry about if if we get the P and M if P equals MP. These are issues we're actually dealing with right now. Right now, we're we're, we're dealing with issues that, um, for example, we're currently in the middle of a jobless recovery. And, you know, the stock markets are doing very well, but the unemployment rate has not come down significantly. And part of the argument some people are making is that we've become so efficient um, in many, you know, computers have gotten so good at many of the tasks we're currently doing that um, these jobs, some of these jobs are just not coming back. So it's an issue. And, and there's also huge, been, I mean, it's not hard to follow the news. I mean, huge discussions about. Uh, the, the loss in privacy from the ability of computers to search um, immense amounts of data, you know, in different ways. I mean, already, even without, without having people. So um, these are issues that we need to confront now. These are not issues. Um, and these issues, you know, would get a lot much worse if people MP, But even now, um, these, these are issues that are confronting computer scientists. Um, I mean, the loss of privacy, issues of security, issues with job loss, you know, whether nobody knows 100% whether or not this is related to increased technology um, and computation. But um, these are these it's it's uh, these are difficult problems and it's not clear what the right approach is or what could or if there's even anything we could do to change it. I think also one of the things that in, it's interesting is when you talk about privacy and such things as computer passwords, that this is actually related to the problem of factoring large numbers. And possibly you could trace a little bit of the history of this because it's something that intimately concerns all of us. We all worry about can somebody hack into our passwords? Can somebody steal our bank account? So, um, yeah, this was a beautiful insight that came sort of more in the late 70s, uh, that you could use the difficulty of certain kinds of, of problems, um, like NP problems, to um, be able to do cryptographic things. To sort of What happened in the 70s is cryptography moved from an art to a science. So before the 70s, people would just try to create hard codes, and then people would try to break them, and it was, but there was no sort of mathematics behind it. After the 70s, people actually developed mathematical techniques that let us produce um, uh, uh, hard cryptographic functions based on mathematical problems like factoring. Uh, it's, uh, because factoring has interest. It's, it's, it turns out that if I give you a number, it's relatively easy to tell whether or not the number is prime. Um, so a prime number means that it doesn't have any factors other than uh, the number in itself. Um, so, uh, it's very easy to tell whether or not a number has different factors, but even if you know that a number is not prime, even if you know the number has multiple factors, it turns out that as far as we know, it's very computationally difficult to find those factors. So, and, um, so we can actually use those factors as, uh, as, a, a secret password, uh, for an encryption process. Um, that can't be broken unless you could factor those numbers. And so a lot of modern cryptography is sort of based on that principle. Um, and if it peaked, and if it turns out that P equals the unlikely event, um, again, let me, let me emphasize that you know, P equal MP is a 
still what I believe in, unlike the event of P equals NP, it would take away that ability to, uh, uh, you'll be able to factor numbers easy, you'll be able to break these kinds of codes easily. Um, it's not clear what would happen with cryptography. I mean, a lot of the, the techniques we use now would be gone, but there's other kinds of tricks you could possibly play. So you might be able, be able to, to deal with that thing. It's also in cryptography, um, I mean, there's other ways to break into systems other than breaking the code. In fact, usually it's bad implementations that let people break into systems. So, um, uh, I mean, cryptography is not enough for security, and security is a very tough problem. Uh, so, we're it's, again, it's another issue that we that that we have to, you know, even though we don't know if P equals NP or not, um, uh, uh, the difficulty in maintaining secure systems is is a problem that. Um, that that is really keeping a lot of people up at night. I seem to remember that in maybe the 70s or 80s, papers on number theory in this particular area were classified by the government because the uh, they were they felt that it was uh, so important to security that maybe we'd better keep this stuff secret. And some mathematicians were required to have security clearance. But I think that the idea of public key systems arose at around that time, and maybe you could explain these. Uh, okay, so yeah, there were some systems. Yeah, I mean, the government did try to block some publications of papers. For the most part, they were not successful. So most of the stuff did end up being published, um, except, you know, obviously the people who actually work, like work at the NSA, we never know what's going on inside that agency. Um, now, as far as public key crypto, so what's a public key crypto system? So we have this amazing ability. I can go on the internet from my computer or at work or at home. I can connect to Facebook or to my bank, and we can exchange information. I can exchange information with my bank over the internet where someone listening on the internet can read every discussion the two of us have and not have any clue what we're saying to each other. And that's and that's known as public key cryptography. It's, it's, it's a way for two people who've, ne who've never met and never been able to exchange a secret in private, um, uh, still able to have a conversation that no one else can follow. And the basic way that it works is that um, uh, um, what a Facebook would do or what a bank would do is they would publish what's called a public key. They just publish uh, a certain kind of value. And now, with a public key, you can encrypt information, but it doesn't go the other way. You can't decrypt it. So I can use the public key to take my message and encrypt it to make it look like a random, random piece of nonsense. And then that's what I send over to Facebook. Now, Facebook created this public key, but also part of that public key. Now, typically, what a public key and private key are, typically, like for example, a public key might be a large number, and a private key are the factors of that number. And what Facebook did was take two large prime numbers, both flying together, and get this larger number. It publishes the larger number. That lets me send secret messages. But it does know the original factors. So Facebook, once it gets this encrypted message, can decrypt it because it has a private key that lets it decrypt. So um, that's kind of the way this public key cryptography lets us talk to each other, um, lets us actually communicate having never met or never discussed secrets before, and yet able to still produce secret messages. And that would all go away if P were equal. So if P equals NP, you cannot have public key photography. We would have to have some sort of way of exchanging secret keys. I don't know how, but, uh, <laughs> but we'd have to go back to that old-fashioned way of photography um, if it turned out that P were equal. One of the things that I think I found interesting about your book was even in the event that P is not equal to NP, and I gather that this is sort of the majority opinion in the uh, computer science uh, community, um, even so, there are still ways to make inroads on various difficult-to-solve problems, because even if P isn't equal to NP, and even if we don't have a beautiful world, we'd still like to be able to get if we can't get a perfect solution to the traveling salesman problem, we'd certainly settle for one that it was pretty close to good as long as we could compute it. Uh, that's right. So, I mean, the problem is you have these hard problems. That doesn't mean we 
don't need to solve them. So there's a lot, you know, even if they're very hard, even if P does equal NP, which means we can't solve them all the time exactly, there's a lot of things we could do. We can solve medium-sized problems just by brute force search because computers have just gotten so much faster through the years. So often, you know, if it's a problem on, if you're doing a traveling salesman problem on a, on a, a few dozen cities, for example, uh, or even a hundred cities with some slightly cleverer algorithms, you can actually just solve them because uh, we can just use very fast computers with some, you know, some small tricks to save a little bit of the search time. Um, uh, also, you can you can write algorithms called heuristics, which don't always give the, the correct answer, but often do. Or approximation algorithms, as you said, which kind of gets you uh, answers which may not be the absolute best, shortest path, gets something close to the shortest possible path through all the cities, which is often, again, very useful. So there are a number of different things, or you can do some combination of all of the above. Or maybe try to solve it. You know, if, if one so one problem is computationally difficult to solve, well, then maybe you modify your problem. You you reach your goal through a different computational process, and that might also and that might which might be computationally easier to do. So there's a lot of different kinds of ways you can kind of tackle these these hard to solve problems because you know we have to solve them, and in these cases we just really need to solve these computational challenges. So we just need to do the best we can, and so there's a lot of a lot of research, a lot of computation, a lot of work on, on how do we solve these problems as best we can. And there's been a lot of great progress along these lines. This sort of gets back to something that I was asking you about earlier when you said that I think it was Cook showed that, uh, either Cook or Carp showed that a couple of different problems could be solved equivalently simply by modifying the solution for one, the algorithm that solved one, to get an algorithm that solved the other. That's for the best, I guess I would call it the best solution, the perfect solution. But does the same thing happen with these approximate solutions or heuristics? If you have an approximate solution to the, say, the traveling salesman problem, can you modify that appropriately to get as good an approximate solution for the clique problem? Uh, so, and that, so that gets a bit more complicated in some cases. So the answer to your specific question is we don't think so. Um, uh, we actually know good approximation algorithms for traveling salesmen. We don't believe they're a good approximation algorithm. And for reasons that I don't want to get too far into. Um, it, it, when you start getting into those kinds of questions, there are some connections, but the connections aren't as global as they were in you know, for the, the specific, you know, for the problems that solve everything. Um, and then it becomes more of a problem by problem. There are some problems where we can tie the approximations together, and there are some problems which just seem very hard to approximate. Um, in fact, some things where, there's some cases where we can show that you can't approximate unless P equals NP, unless you can solve it exactly. So, um, uh, it, it really, it becomes a more of a problem by problem case. It's, it's no longer that you can make sweeping general statements. Um, in regard to that question that you can only show that there's, an, that there's a good solution if P equals NP, is there any problem that you could describe of that character that would be relatively easy to understand, or are they all highly technical ones? Well, I think clique is actually the best example. Uh, uh, it turns out that... Uh, uh, we can actually show that no algorithm can get even a halfway decent approximation on clique. Um, uh, you, could, you can actually take an algorithm that gets a reasonable approximation on clique and turn it into a new algorithm that solves clique exactly. So, wow. Clique is an example of something where we don't even think it's going to be, there's even a way to approximate cliques in general uh, very easily. That's extremely interesting. One of the things that I've read about is the idea that there may be quantum computers which can solve some of these problems. Um, do you, are you able to tell us a little bit about how quantum computation might be able to at least make these problems a little easier? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tricky because it's quantum is still, we're trying to understand what the power of quantum actually is. Um, the quantum computer, the idea is that there are these quantum effects so that information is entangled in a way that defies our sort of common notion of, of how information works. 
So it gets very tricky. There are very mathematical descriptions of these things. It's a very, it's a very messy thing. There was a beautiful result by uh, Peter Shore in the uh, mid-90s where he showed that if you could build a quantum computer, and let I me mean, make it clear, no one's yet built a large, you know, even a medium-scale quantum computer. But if, you could, but if you could build a quantum computer, you could factor numbers quickly. So the problem of factoring numbers uh, is something that could be solved quickly with a quantum, with the hypothetical quantum computer. Um, you know, but these quantum computers could imagine. You could imagine that. I mean, there's some physics and engineering things you have to get have to deal with. But it, you could imagine that, that these, these machines could actually exist in the future. Uh, now it turns out that factoring um, while it's a hard, while we think it's a hard problem to solve, we don't think it's as hard as problems like clique. So people generally don't believe that uh, quantum computers are going to make um, a significant uh, impact on the really hardest of entry problems like thinking traveling salesmen. Um, they might help us solve them a little bit faster, but they're not going to help us really solve um, large-scale problems efficiently. That's, that's the general belief, but uh, I think it's still too early to tell exactly how powerful quantum computers are going to be and what, exactly what kinds of problems they're going to help us solve. I think also one of the things that I noticed was that um, the idea of biological computation, which I don't, I don't know whether or not you mention in the book, but I live in Southern California and a friend of mine teaches in the computer science department at USC and there's a guy named Len Edelman there who was responsible for the algorithm that helps you do public key, private key um, cryptography. And also I think in the 90s he discovered a way to get biological organisms to do certain types of computations. But even though there was sort of a brief interest in that, I think that's sort of limited also. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm not very familiar with the work. Yeah, Len Edelman, as you're right, is, is part of, you know, the RSA. He's the A in RSA, which is uh, sort of the standard uh, public cryptography algorithm that's used today. Um, uh, you're right, and in the 90s, he had this beautiful work where he was able to solve, I think, small traveling salesman problems by mixing up you know, creating certain uh, biological sequences and, you know, mix them up in test tubes and until the appropriate traveling salesman problem appeared as a solution. Um, so, you know, that stuff is really just amazing that you can even use biological computing to produce these kinds of uh, solutions. But uh, the limitations of... Uh, he wasn't really... They're not really... These biological machines, computers are not really um, uh, solving problems in a, in a fundamentally different way. They're able to do this kind of parallelism by mixing up things in a, in a, in a, in a little test tube. Uh, uh, but, uh, but exponential growth, I mean, the, I mean the, the problem with most MP problems, the brute force search, is that as you grow the size of the problem, number of possibilities, like every time you grow it a little bit, the number of possibilities doubles. And that doubling effect is very dramatic. And so while he could solve maybe, I don't know exactly how large a problem, maybe 20, 30 city traveling salesman problems he was able to solve. Um, uh, if he wants to start solving a thousand size or 10,000 size cities, um, now you'd have to mix up you know, biological things in the size of an ocean or a large <laughs> And you know, so it, so there was a, there was, it, it didn't, it doesn't scale. I mean, it was, it was beautiful that he was able to do this at all, you know, even on small-scale problems. But it, it, unfortunately, it doesn't really scale to solve large problems. So it's unlikely that you're actually going to be able to solve problems with your biological computing, um, uh, at least in that way, than you are. Um, I mean, it might speed up a little bit, uh, traditional computing, but I don't think you're going to get, you're not going to be able to solve large-scale problems using biological computing. It doesn't scale in the ways that make it that useful. One of the things that I felt about your book that I personally found resonated with me and I think will probably with a lot of our older listeners is the idea of being able to come up with personalized treatments for cancer based on what might be called the protein folding problem. 
And I wonder if you could expand on this a little and whether there are other biological problems that you know of that discovering uh, that P equals NP and an algorithm that can manage to attack these problems in a fairly quick fashion, biological problems that might be conceivably solved and might better our lives. So, um, and uh, everything I'm going to say you should take with a grain of salt because biology is not my strength. Or, I mean, I don't have a strong background in biology. But um, the key to a lot of these things is we don't understand. So there's this notion of protein folding. This notion if you create a certain DNA, a protein with a certain kind of DNA sequence, um, that, that will cause that, that, that protein will actually cause uh, uh, the folded in a certain way that lets it connect with other proteins. You know, proteins connect through their geometries. Um, this is very high scale, and I, I might be completely wrong. So again, let me just put that. I've, I, this, this is sort of how it works. But we really don't understand that process. It's very hard to predict, given a sequence, how it's going to fold. Or even more, to invert that process, which is what you really need to do. You need to find a protein that, that looks like a certain kind of shape. How do we design a sequence to create that protein? And if P would equal MP, we should be able to discover both these answers. We should be able to understand the process that describes how uh, protein folds and also understand the process of how to create a sequence, a DNA, you know, the appropriate sequence of um, amino acids or, or whatever that would actually create uh, the protein that, would, that we actually needed to attack a certain kind of disease, you know, that would fold in a certain way that it would allow it to attack cancer cells but not attack other kinds of cells. Um, so... Uh, uh, so, yeah, the P equals, if P were to equal NP, we should be able to solve this right away. But I want to, you know, again, even if we don't, even if it turns out that P is not equal to NP or we'll never be able to show P would equal NP, um, still, you know, these are kinds of, of computational challenges people are still trying to tackle, and I, I attack, and I suspect um, we will make significant progress along these lines. Um, you know, as our computers get faster, as we're able to, to tackle some of these problems, we may not understand it completely, but hopefully enough. Uh, we will be able to attack um, uh, some of the computational issues that, that could help us um, attack diseases in the future. One of the things that I've noticed in college and also in graduate schools is that there are now many more programs in areas such as biomathematics. You find that there are, you know, that there are uh, positions open at various colleges for people who specialize in biomathematics and I would hope that there is sort of more of a communication between the biological community and the, com and the computer science community in order so that they both might work jointly on these problems. Because, for instance, even if the protein folding problem can't be solved as part of P equals NP, maybe it's possible that a combination of computer scientists and biologists could come up with an approximate solution that might be able to greatly improve our chances of fighting cancer. Well, that's an excellent point, and there is a large area known as bioinformatics that um, uh, tries to do exactly that. Um, I wish there was more communication. I think, um, unfortunately, I think there are a lot of language and cultural issues that make communication between different disciplines more difficult than it should be. But um, um, I, I think everyone agrees that we need to sort of improve that communication, be able to use the tools for computer science and the tools for biology. Like, you know, I know some computer science tools. My knowledge of biology is very limited. Um, so that we can understand exactly what are the right algorithmic challenges and figure out the right tools to attack those challenges in biology. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're trying to do that here in, uh, at Georgia Tech. It's a you know, trying to get people talking to each other. Um, uh, and, you know, we have connections with, with Emory, because you know, most, uh, Emory has this raw medical school, but Tech doesn't have a medical school. Uh, um, and I think a lot of other institutions, are, you know, MIT certainly has strong groups. I mean, they're, they're just strong groups across the country trying to deal with exactly these issues. Uh, um, it's very difficult. 
And these are difficult computational challenges. It's difficult to try to understand what the, even the right questions to ask are. I mean, that's the real problem. It's really, we're, we're, we're still in the stage where we're trying to figure out what are the right questions to ask. I think that's very well put because one of the things that I've noticed is that it's very easy for mathematicians to talk to physicists simply because they're dealing with what are essentially relatively simple systems. And as you get further away from physics and nearer to biology, the systems get more and more complex. And we just don't yet have the mathematics to cope with uh, a lot of the questions that biology would want to know. And so as a result, what they have is they have a lot of tools that they can use on a technological basis. But in terms of computational and theoretical structure that interfaces well with mathematics, not so much. Um, yeah, so, yeah, somehow physics seems much closer tied to mathematics than biology does, but there's certainly um, a growing movement in biology and bioinformatics to try to connect those connections. So I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. As someone who's getting on in years, I'm glad to hear it. Anyway, Lance, I'd like to thank you for being on our show, and I wonder if you'd tell our listeners what you're working on at the moment. Okay, so what I've been doing in recent years is actually um, connecting with the economics community, uh, particularly when I was at Northwestern, I was working with some economists on the business school there, uh, because there's a lot of issues when a lot, when this, you can kind of view um, uh, you know, sort of people dealing with each other. Normally we think of economics as dealing with how people deal with money and these kinds of issues, but there's a lot of computational underpinnings there. Um, economists, I mean, if you have a large market, for example, uh, trying to figure out what the best choice to make is often a difficult computational question. And... Um, so I've been trying to take the tools from computational complexity, the work that I do, and find and find how do we use the tools and models from my world and apply it to economic models to help us understand how the economic models work better. Um, and in some cases, even vice versa, I've been able to use some tools from economics and apply it to computational models. Um, so that's 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 been a lot of my recent work is trying to tie these two fields together. I think there's a lot of do you think that might lead to another book? Uh, it's, we've got a lot more to do before I'm ready to that topic. <laughs> okay, Lance, thanks again so much for being on the show. Thanks I'm, for, um, uh, thanks for uh, the time to talk. It's been great. I'm Jim Stein, the host of New Books in Math. Goodbye. Goodbye.